If you would turn with me, please, to Matthew 3. Last week, we started a study called Reclaiming Repentance. I'll give you a brief view as to why this is important, but also at the same time that this is our subject matter, what I also am wanting to do is encourage you and getting actively involved in marking up the scriptures and taking it upon yourself to put pen to paper, to put mind upon it, to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and his illumination over it. Because biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. Now, I don't remember what I had to share with you as far as a picture that I found. Somebody did a poll recently, and I want to say that it's only 20% of Christians who believe that the Word of God is actually God-breathed anymore. It was one of the latest polls. It's the lowest that it's been in forever. And the way that our culture looks, you shouldn't be surprised. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants to be told that there's a truth. They certainly don't want to be told that all their actions must be answered for. And that's what we're dealing with when we come face to face with a creator who has spoken and creatures who are out of line. So I think it's important for us to recognize the need to be engrossed in the word of God and have it saturating our minds and to be making a difference in our lives every day, even when it seems like it's not, being persistent and paying attention to the scriptures. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you, as far as any sort of formal format that we have for this, I don't have one. Uh, we might even not even end up getting to an application for today's sermon today. I'm not for sure. But my goal is for us to be studying through. And I was very thankful that I probably got more responses from last week uh, from that sermon than one I've had in a long, long time. A lot of you had a lot of questions about the nature of repentance. And so our goal is to walk through this, to, to establish the rationale of why we're doing what we're doing, and then to begin hopefully answering those questions and moving into some new parts of what we see as far as what the Word of God says about repentance. The first thing I want to do is a shameless plug. We're not sponsored by these people at all. Uh, but Literal Word is a great app. If you don't have a Bible app or you use version or something like that, fantastic. That's wonderful. I would just encourage you, download this app, try it for a little while. If you don't like it, great, get rid of it. That's okay. But it's a great app. I found it to be very helpful uh, with everything that you can do with it, and it has a very good lexicon with it. Here's the problem that we've come across. Let's say that you were wanting to study a subject, and you're hearing all sorts of different things about it. I picked repentance because it's a controversial one. I picked repentance because actually it's a simple one if we would just read the Word of God. But there's a lot of people who would look at it and say, well, I've heard that the church replaces Israel. Is that true? And so and many times we go for grabbing for other books instead of going to the scriptures to see what they have to say. Uh, well, I've heard that the New Testament really takes precedence over the Old Testament, and so I need to learn more about that. Going to the Word of God is the way to see whether or not each testament can stand on its own. And when you deal with competing views about repentance and you find that there is some uh, disconnect that's going on, you just want to know what the truth is. I would hope that our goal in knowing God's Word is just to know what the truth is. And so here we have two quotes. I shared them with you last week. If you're somebody who's lost in what we're doing right now, I definitely want you to listen to uh, last week's sermon just to get caught up, but I'm going to try to recap it well so we have good ground to stand on. A man named Wayne Grudem writes in his Systematic Theology, which is the top-used theology book in all of our seminaries and Bible colleges today. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. 
okay? There's a lot that's packaged in that. He's saying this word means all of those things. Notice that it's emotional. Notice that there's a conviction that takes place. Notice that there's a determination that takes place after that to no longer commit those errors. It sounds like that a lot of it is rooted in the person to be making the difference. But it's interesting because when you compare this with part of what it looks like for sacraments in the Catholic Church, you find that it says the first of these is contrition of heart, which consists of sorrow for sin, committed and an intention not to sin in the future. Do they sound the same? Do they sound the same? Okay, you got to be awake today. You have to, okay? According to these explanations, Catholic penance and Protestant repentance are the same. When you look at the definitions for the words, you're able to pick up a lexicon. Not, not everybody has a lexicon. Not everybody would be able to know the Greek alphabet to go through and sort out a lexicon. And so that's the nice thing about the literal word app. You just hold your finger on there, pops right up for you. You look smart doing all the searching by yourself, right? It's great. But when you deal with the idea of repent, you deal with to change one's mind. And then they give you a second definition, could be possible, feel remorse, repent, which seems odd, but remember, they're translating the Greek word, not the English word, okay? So they're bringing it from that. And be converted, which seems to be very odd here, okay? I don't understand. I don't even know what I'm marking there. Erase, erase, erase. Very odd there, okay? When you look at the one that comes with uh, your literal word app, to change one's mind or purpose, hence, to repent. When you deal with the noun situation. It means a change of mind. And then when you deal with the literal word lexicon, it has the idea of an afterthought, a change of mind, and repentance. And you say, well, wait a second. Guys that are talking theology and Protestant and Catholic belief don't have a definition that jives with the word nerds. Is essentially what it is. So which one am I supposed to believe? One of them has got this incredible emotional uh, commitment and, and renunciation of sin to not want to do those things again. The other one is, is to be thinking differently about something. And if you remember last week, something interesting that we found out is that when the Greek Bible was translated into Latin, it's commonly what's known as the Vulgate, you had some guys that were disputing back and forth about what this word should be translated as. And they wanted to gravitate it because of the dominance of the Catholic Church and Catholic understanding, more to the idea of penance rather than the literal meaning of to think after or to be wise again, to become wise again. And so there was a translational switch that took place. Now, here's the problem. If the word originally means to change a mind, but yet we're being told theologically it actually has a ton of emotion bound up in it and a sorrowful commitment that takes place, we have a definite difficulty in how we would read scriptures in the Bible and come to a conclusion about what they might mean. So we've got to come to brass tacks. What do we do? Do we grab every commentary we can? No. We get with the Bible. And we look up every instance that we can of how the New Testament uses this word repentance, and we go through. Now, last week, you had some homework. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, because they correspond with what we saw going on in Matthew chapter 3. So, we have to do word studies of these. And we shows that it's a consistent definition of change of mind, not found the explanations. We should have a problem with this. What is the truth? So, repent and repentance in the gospel. I want to pick up in Matthew 3, verses 8 through 9. Some of you had some definite questions that really disturbed you. And I loved seeing the tension in your faces. It was great. So here we go. He says, therefore, bear fruit. Bear fruit. 
okay, which is obviously works, in keeping with repentance. Notice this. Works are not repentance. Everybody see that? If repentance is anything from this one verse, you find out that good works should be, maybe not always are, but should be the result of repentance having taken place, which seems to line up much more with the lexical meaning of change the mind. Everybody got that? Yes? Who's bored? Just making sure, man. Go for it! Because I'm not there yet. That's a great question. I'm so thankful I had the answer to it. That's good. Anybody else got an easy question? By the way, when I'm done with the little section of Scripture, hopefully I explain it. If you want to pepper questions at me, go for it. Okay? This is very different from what we were doing previously with the gifts and body. Okay? So, So by all means, let's be interactive about this so that we can all learn and track together. This is something that you can do at home. You can actually sit down and go through all these instances, and I'm trying to work with you through it to show you how it's possible. So, notice, therefore, and it refers to the previous before. Again, you don't have to mark like me, but what I would do is normally this. It's expounding upon what was going on before. It's John the Baptist in his ministry. He says, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Why? Because heritage don't mean a thing. That's the reason why. For, heavy underline, I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Just as you think that your heritage might be a thing, God is saying it ain't no big thing for him to be able to raise up worshipers out of inanimate objects. He can totally do that if he wants to. So don't rely on your heritage to think that you're okay with God. That's not the situation. Now, if you will look at verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Does that sound like a fun statement? You know what was great? Michaela Spears came up, and she had this draw. Oh, it was brutal. It was an axe. Is that up there? It is up there. I told her, I said, that's great. Don't ever stop doing that. Because she will always remember of what that scene was. If you need to draw pictures or cartoons or Charlie Brown, I don't care. If you get the word of God more saturated into your mind and heart, that's what matters. So whatever it takes to keep your mind grasping onto it. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. You know what this sounds like? Judgment. Would you agree? Yeah, it's a pretty severe picture that's being painted here. Therefore, since that is the case and judgment is nigh, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire now where did we last see the idea of fruit where was it verse 8 therefore do what bear fruit in keeping with repentance bearing fruit is not repentance bearing fruit is a result of repentance keep the context together context is key all the time The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit, how would you bear good fruit? A result of repentance. You say, well, this sounds like work salvation to me. It's not work salvation because salvation is not in view. Salvation is not 
what John the Baptist is concerned about. His message is, Jewish people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul told the Philippian jailer that gospel message because he is in a dispensation on the other side of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is pre-cross, okay? The goal here is for Jews to clean house, mentally and heart-wise speaking, so that they can see the Messiah. Now, how do we know this? Because if you compare Scripture with Scripture, you get an excellent commentary. Now, you might remember how we ended last week, the idea of Acts 19.4. Paul is talking to some disciples in Ephesus who were baptized with John the Baptist's baptism, but they had never heard that the Holy Spirit had come, okay? And here's what he told them. This is the great reveal at this time. Paul said, John, this one right here is for Brenda, JTB, there you go, baptized with the baptism of repentance. Does this correspond with what we're looking at in Matthew 3? Perfectly. So Matthew 3, right there, telling the people to believe in him. And if you remember, the him is Jesus, who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Does everybody see that in this instance right here, the repentance is not equal to believing in Christ? Yes? Understand this. John the Baptist didn't necessarily come preaching Christ. He came preaching the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus God's king that will usher in the kingdom? Absolutely. We're not denying that. When the Messiah shows up, does John make light of that? Does he not say, this is one who I'm not even fit to tie his shoes? Right? Remember he passes by, behold the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world? His disciples got up, left him, and went and followed Jesus. Yes, it's not that John shied away from that. But the idea of repentance was preparatory. Why? So that they would be able to believe in him. Now let's just say, that we go to. Who wants to be picked on this morning, hypothetically speaking? Anybody? Anybody? I do not want to pick on Jay. What's that? You know what? I want to pick on Vern. I just want to. Let's say that we go to Vern's house. I go to Vern's house. He invites me over, okay? I'm like, Vern, I got to go to the bathroom. He's like, yeah, down the hall to the right or whatever. Okay, so I go down the hall, I go to the right, I go through the wrong door, I go into a room, and Vern has pornography everywhere. Okay, that's why I'm picking on him, not real, okay? I've never been to his house, but I trust him, okay? Everywhere, plastered all over, floor, ceiling, doesn't matter, on the screens, everything like that's terrible, okay? If I came out here and I said, Vern, you need to repent of this, this is wrong, and he doesn't listen. Do you think that he's going to be susceptible in his life to receiving the things of God if he desires for that sin to stay around him and to be engrossed in it all the time? No. If he listened and he was struck to his heart by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and said, oh, good grief, you're wrong, I got, or you're right, I got found out, this is terrible, I'm so ashamed, and he cleaned house of this whole thing. Instead started writing scripture all over the walls, let's just say, right? Compensating for the whole thing. And his actions are a result of a change of mind that has taken place 
in his life. Do you think after that he's going to be more receiving of the things of God? It's not any different here. Clean house, people. Think differently about how you are living. Why? So that you will believe in the one who is to come. Why? Jesus hadn't shown up yet. John the Baptist is the forerunner, and he's telling everybody, clear the way, make straight the paths of the Lord. He shouldn't come in and have to do like this to get to everybody's heart. I didn't know my hips could move like that. <laughs> Almost pulled something. Uh, he should have a straight path to your heart, so get all the junk out of the way. How do you do that? Repent. The baptism, remember, pushing them down, and when they pop up, they would confess all their sins openly. Now, here's the amazing thing. There might have been shame in those sins, but not for them anymore. Why? Because they were leaving that stuff behind, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Could repentance have emotion attached to it? It can. It can also not. But if we take the basic, basic definition of what the word men means, it has nothing to do with emotion. I would hope that if somebody was struck by their sin, the reason why they're struck and emotional about their sin is because their mind and heart has changed about their sin. You don't see anybody going, hey, what's wrong? What you said? I don't know. No, there's a conviction that took place. And it is a result of, just as works would be, just as an emotion would be, it's a works, or sorry, it's a result out of a change of mind, a different conviction that has taken place. So the whole idea that he's here is saying, clear the way because Jesus is coming and you need to be ready for him. Now, remember why these guys weren't ready for him. Maybe they went back to Ephesus before he showed up. I don't know. But after this, if you read in verses five and six, Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus because they've now believed in him, and in doing so, they receive the Holy Spirit. So, moving on back to Matthew 3, if you're looking at it. John says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with, one, Holy Spirit, two, fire. I had, had good conversation with my wife about this. This was really good. We're breaking it down. Driving in the car, we're talking about it. It was wonderful. My understanding of it is, is that when I see it, and maybe I wasn't clear about it here, when I see that this has got judgment at the beginning here, and then we go through, and we've also got his winnowing fork is in his hand, he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, right? Which is a good thing. But he will burn up the chaff with, and sometimes the idea of fire being involved could be divine discipline that he brings. Uh, but sometimes, depending on context, you have to make a judgment call of what he's talking about. And I believe if we're talking about a situation right here, we are talking about the lake of fire. So when we deal with, um, let's see here, when we deal with the idea of the Holy Spirit one, we see this coming at his first advent. And that's exactly what happened after he was resurrected and ascended. He sent the Holy Spirit. In comes the Holy Spirit. The church begins in Acts chapter 2. They are immersed in the Spirit. And now we all have the indwelling Holy Spirit at the moment of faith. But I believe this number two, this fire part, is going to be dealing with his second advent. 
Understand, when he touches down on the Mount of Olives with his bare feet, the time of grace is over for the earth. It's done. And he comes in judgment. And he will judge with fire, and he has no problems with it. In fact, we're actually told about the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is the one whom the Lord, when he returns, will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Now, I don't think Jesus has halitosis, okay? But I do think it's a very good indicator there about the idea of an immediate judgment that was pretty much effortless, especially in comparison to the power that the Antichrist will seek to wield at that time. So now, this brings us to this idea of unquenchable fire. The wheat, that's a good thing, but this right here, a bad thing. And that's where we kind of left off last week. Are there any questions about the Matthew 3 passage? Fantastic. If you glance at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus shows up on the scene after his temptation in the wilderness, you find that his message is the exact same. Repent. Why? For explanation of what this is necessary for. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. That's the reason why. So notice that Jesus' message is the same. The only people at that time who had a history of kingdom understanding were the Jews. And we can read all about that moving from Genesis to Malachi. We can see it unfold as a narrative in our own hands, okay? So we understand they have this background, and this is who Jesus' primary audience is. Now, any questions about Matthew 4.17? It's really simple, but we see the idea of repentance is the same. It seems to be the same message as John the Baptist. I believe it's speaking of change of mind. It's not got an emotional situation of conviction and, and all this other stuff that's going on, a, a renunciation of sin and that kind of stuff. Okay, here's one that messes people up a lot, especially if you're somebody who listens to Paul Washer. Paul Washer is an online evangelist. He's from a Reformed background. He loves using this verse. I've heard him use it numerous times. This is from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. I'm not getting to the sheet yet. I'm hoping to get there. If not, we'll pick up the sheet next week and deal with it. The interesting thing about Mark's gospel is it's fast, okay? Uh, Mark's favorite superhero is Flash or something because it just through everything really quickly. And you find the word used over and over immediately, 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 immediately. And sometimes I'm like, why is this guy in such a hurry? I don't know, but he is. So thankfully you have Matthew and Luke to fill in some of the gaps and give us a full explanation of situations that are going on. But Mark says something in passing that has caused a lot of stumbling with people, okay? Notice it says here in verse 14, now after John had been taken into custody, now why is this important? Here's the reason why. Because they just gave you the timing of when this thing happens. Even though Mark moves fast, you have timing of what happens. John the Baptist has been arrested. Here you go, Brenda. There. Jesus came to Galilee. Anybody remember where Galilee is located? Nope. In the north. Sea of Galilee. Everybody remember? Remember it this way. It's an easy way to remember it. Sea of Galilee is up top. Jordan River flows down along Samaria down into the salt or the Dead Sea at the bottom where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are in the region of Judea. So Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Salt Sea. Everybody got that? Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Okay, so you got three tiers. So notice he's up north. He came into Galilee. And notice what he's doing, preaching the gospel of God. Now here's what messes people up. This word gospel, and let's pause for just a second, or sorry, let's hold that for just a second. Let's finish this next verse, and then we'll back up. And saying, the time is fulfilled. You know what else that is right there? 
Same thing. Timing language. Something different is happening. Jesus just told you. Whatever you were waiting for at a certain point, it's now. Okay? So we got to go. You got your Walmart pickup order at such and such time. You need to be there and pick it up. Yes? Your time of waiting is over. I got to be there at this time. So notice it says, and what's the subject? The kingdom of God is at hand. Now pause for a second. The kingdom of God is at hand. What word is missing from this situation? What was Jesus and John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. That's the message. So notice we've got it along the same lines. Now, this is after John has been arrested. It's early on in the ministry. Who is the audience that Jesus is speaking to here? Who are they? Jewish people. Okay, so the audience is Jews. Now watch this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's another timing language right there. And then he's got what? There it is. Ding, 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 ding. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now let me ask you a question. Is Jesus talking here about the cross? No, he's not. Some people would chew you up one side and down the other for making that observation. Jesus is always talking about the cross. Don't you know that every time you bring up the idea of wood in the Old Testament, it's foreshadowing the cross? No. That's called bad Bible study. That's what that's called. It's, that's not the case. The message here is the kingdom of God that the Jews have been anticipating and they've been looking forward to the Messiah for all of this time. And now Jesus is talking about the deepest longings of the Jewish heart in this first century time. So notice you've got the idea of the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? We know this. It means good news. So the Packers drafted three receivers and picked up Sammy Watkins. Is that good news? Yeah, it's real good news when you know that Devontae Adams left, yes? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Football. But we're like, yes, that's good news. Let me ask you a question. Does that save anybody? No, it saves Aaron Rodgers, but not anybody else. Right? Everybody's seen his tattoo. Everybody see what he got. What a weirdo, man. He's strange. Pray for Aaron Rodgers. He needs Jesus, okay? He's dating a witch named Blue. That's strange. Moving on. <clears throat> Don't ask me how I know this stuff. Moving on. <laughs> Notice that the gospel is good news. It's not just good news here. It's good news here. Now, the problem is you deal with some guys and they'll say, see, he's saying repent and believe the gospel. It's all one thing. But the problem is they define repentance as this emotional turning from sin, willing to renounce everything. You have to have contrition in your heart kind of thing, and they liken it to a Catholic penance type of mentality. But if we understand it as a change of mind, okay? So mind, change here, and believe. Believe is a full conviction that something is true. So the idea of repentance is you need your mind changed and there needs to be a trust factor involved, faith that needs to take place. Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel that's being preached at this time? The gospel of the kingdom. That's exactly what's being put before the people. Why? Because we have 39 books of unfolding this understanding. You'll listen to some people who say, no, 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 no. Mark is documenting this here because it's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sin. That's not the case. 
that's not the context. They are reading that meaning into it. So when we deal with the idea of repent here, we're dealing with it as an understanding of, yes, the mind needs to be changed. Notice that there's nothing emotional going on. And then the call is for them to believe that they need to have a full conviction regarding the kingdom of heaven being at hand. That's the terms that are put on the table by the Messiah himself. Are there any questions about this? Does everybody see how we're unpacking repentance as we go? Yes? Roxanne. Yes, it is. That's what they've been anticipating all this time. They have been waiting for the kingdom to be restored for the longest time as it was in the time of David, a literal earthly kingdom. This isn't figurative. It's not spiritual. It's not partially here now and then not here later. In fact, let me answer this for you from Scripture, okay? Put your finger here. Well, I don't know if you necessarily have to because we're going to move on after this unless anybody's got any more questions. Look at Acts chapter 1. Let me show you how this looks because Acts chapter 1 We're transitioning into the church dispensation. It hasn't happened yet. We're leaving the dispensation of the law behind. Jesus has fulfilled the law completely and has died for sins. He's been buried. He's been raised and he's getting ready to ascend. I don't have this on here, but this is kind of what what happens whenever you're answering questions, okay? But I want you to see this. Look at verse 4. Chapter 1 of Acts, verse 4. Gathering to them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, and that's the Holy Spirit, which he said, you heard of from me. Now, how do we know that? Because he talked about it in John 14. He talked about it in John 16. He told them, I'm going to leave. I'm going to ask of my Father. He is going to send you a comforter like me. It's to your advantage that I go away. Why? Because there's one physical Jesus in the world. However, the Holy Spirit will indwell every believer. That's a fantastic thing. So he says here, verse 5, for, here's the explanation, John baptized with water. We're familiar with that, yes? That's what we've been looking at in regards to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Does that sound like what we saw in Matthew 3.11? The first time with the Holy Spirit, the second time with fire. And I believe the first time is talking about the institution of the church. The second time we're dealing with the idea of judgment and the lake of fire being a destination for the unbelieving. Now watch this. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to who? Israel. Did it come during the apostles' time, the disciples' time, during the earthly ministry of Jesus? No, because they're asking questions. Lord, you've died. You've been buried. You've raised again. You're appearing to us, and it's amazing, but we're still kind of creeped out a little bit. We're not for sure what to think about this. And we're asking the question, now are you going to take possession of the throne? This is what they're looking forward to. He is the promised king. Look what it says in verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. How does he answer them? 
when the kingdom is established, is not for you to understand. Your job is to receive the Holy Spirit, which they will do because they're already believing, but God's going to do it at a moment in time in order to prove a point about establishing a brand new dispensation, and that is the church. And then he gives them marching orders. And your job is to tell everybody to believe in me. That's what it is. Start in Portage, start in Columbia County, even go to Madison if you have to, even go to Chicago if you have to. It doesn't matter, but it needs to spread out and everybody needs to hear. Good stuff, right? Notice that the kingdom hadn't come yet. And notice that Jesus even gives them an indicator it's not going to come until the Father wants it to. Now, this is the age we're living in right now, the church age. It started in the very next chapter, and it's going on until the rapture. And the kingdom is not here in any form at all. We are awaiting the return of the Messiah to establish his kingdom. Now, if you use this language, it's fine. I love you still. I don't like it because I feel like it misrepresents Scripture. You and I are not building the kingdom. You and I are not furthering the kingdom. You and I are not doing anything in the kingdom right now because it's not here. Jesus establishes his kingdom. He builds the kingdom. It's his kingdom. The fact that we get to share in it at all is a measure of his grace towards us. But right now is about evangelism and discipleship, nothing else. Kingdom stuff will take place at kingdom time. But we still have a rapture to go through and seven years of hell on earth before that's actually established when he comes back and he sets the world right. So right now we're not dealing with this, and even the apostles knew after his resurrection. What about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? It's not what you're to be concerned with right now. Go tell people. The Holy Spirit will be the means of which you do that. So does that make sense, Roxanne? Are there any questions about this passage? You guys are just so easy. I love it. That's good. What time we got? We got time. Let's do this. Turn with me to Matthew 11. Matthew 11 is the next instance where repentance shows up. And this is where you want to pull out your sheets if you like to mark on stuff. That would be fantastic. We do have some pens up here and a little uh, caddy thing that we can pass around if you're somebody who needs a pen. I'm going to go through and kind of mark it up. You can mark it up how you want to. If you got your own system, fantastic. What I'm excited about is that you're getting involved with God's Word. That's what we want to do so that we can research these things. So Matthew chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 20. I think we'll be able to knock both of these little sections out today. Matthew chapter 11. Now the situation that's going on here is that Jesus has given instructions to the twelve. John, the Baptist, has had his moment of doubt because he's in prison. So he sends his disciples, hey, are you the one we're to look for? We're supposed to look for somebody else. That's an incredible statement, and I hope that gives comfort to you as a believer in Christ. If you have doubts in your faith, understand the greatest person that was ever born of a woman had doubts about his faith as well, and he was Jesus' cousin and even did jumping jacks in the womb whenever he came across Mary, okay? So there's a lot there that he had blessed with that we don't from the very beginning. Sometimes when we doubt, guess what? John doubted. It's okay. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his doubt. He comforts him, and he even says something like, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me in verse 6, okay? So if you've had doubts before about Jesus, set those down. Understand that Satan wants to attack you in those things. Don't feel inadequate or shameful, okay? Moving on here, look at verse 20. It says, then he began to denounce the cities, okay, in which, here it is, most of his miracles were done. Jesus did the most incredible things in these cities. Now, why is he denouncing them? 
The word denounce here is very interesting in the Greek because it's the idea of bringing purposeful shame upon them. This was something that took place to where they deserved to be publicly exposed for shameful responses, okay? Why was that? Because they did not, what's the word? Repent. There's a problem. So now what does this look like? Woe to you. Now you might say, so what? The idea of woe in the Old Testament was not good. This is really bad. Police line do not cross. It's a bad situation. You are in a bad state because of the situation. Woe to you, Chorazin. Now I had to look it up. Where in the world is Chorazin located at? Chorazin is located as one of the towns of Galilee. So it's up north. Okay? And he says, woe to you, Bethsaida. Guess where that's at? In Galilee as well. Okay? So it's up north. We know that in the region of Galilee. And here it is. Here's the explanation. Why the woes, Jesus? Here's the reason why. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have, what? Repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, where in the world are Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon are considered regions in Phoenicia. But here's what you need to know about them. Not necessarily pulling out your map. What's interesting about this is Chorazin is Jewish population, and Bethsaida is Jewish population, and Tyre and Sidon are, anybody want to guess? Gentiles. See, when you're a first century Jew, and you think that Gentiles are good for nothing, and they all should be just thrown in the trash and burned up, this is a really incredible thing that Jesus is saying to them face to face. Woe to you! Because if Gentiles would have heard this, they would have changed their thinking about how this was going on. You saw some of the greatest miracles that I'm planning on performing in my time on earth. You were unmoved. That's scary. Okay? Notice what he says here. Nevertheless, I say to you, you know what? Back up for a second because I don't want you to miss something. Everybody see this word right here, if? Everybody see that? If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you. Do you realize that Jesus is telling you the truth about a, hypo, a hypothetical situation that never took place? You see that? Jesus is telling you a possible future that never happened. A possible situation that never occurred. If these cities would have seen these miracles, they would have responded like this. You know Jesus can't lie. He's telling you the truth about it. So he's saying that's even more of a rebuke to you because you did see those miracles. And I am physically in your presence. And you're still not responding how these cities would have had they seen the exact same thing. That's pretty cool that Jesus can see into a future that's not there. Moving on to the next part. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable. See this? More tolerable in Tyre and Sidon. When? In the day of judgment. That's timing language. Than for you. Does everybody notice what Jesus is saying here? He is telling you that there are degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. Remember, hell is not the final destination. Even hell is thrown into the lake of fire. He's letting you know that for people who do not respond to the message when Jesus comes across them, 
there's a greater degree of punishment for them because they've been exposed to the revelation of who Jesus is and they were unmoved. Did they need to change their mind about him? What do you think? When unbelievers hear about Jesus, do they need to change their mind about him? Absolutely. I would hope that that's the hope of our heart and the whole reason why we would want to reach out and share with them. Are we looking for them to have some sort of emotional response and committing to never commit sin again? Is that what we're looking for? No. Why? Because then their salvation would be based on them. Not a change of mind and heart. Trying to make it about their actions. That's why that definition of repentance does not suffice. So notice in the judgment, these cities are going to fare better than you will. Why? Because you had the Messiah actually in your sight and he performed incredible miracles and you stood there like a knot on a log you sour, sour lost person. Sounds bad, doesn't it? Moving on. Also notice that it's preaching a responsibility to respond to Jesus when he reveals things. And you, Capernaum. Where's Capernaum, do we know? It's up north in the same region. Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? And the answer is no. And so you write in a big old no, and you go ahead and slap in a nice little exclamation point. No! Right? You will descend to, what does it say? Hell. You will descend to hell. For, why Jesus? How come you're not all peace-loving hippie Jesus? Here's the reason why. For, if, everybody see this? Notice we're moving into the hypothetical again. He's telling you a truth about what would have happened had circumstances been different. If the miracles had occurred in, do we know this place? Sodom, which occurred in you. It would have remained to this day. I saw one time on National Geographic the search for Sodom. Guess what they found? Nothing. How do we know that? Because when you read the Bible, God said, I will wipe it off the face of the earth. And why is that? What was the problem with Sodom? Sin, not just sin. Rampant sexual sin. Rampant homosexuality to the point to where they were wanting to have sex with angels rather than Lot's virgin daughters. So we're talking about a depth of depravity that has gone beyond the the point of rational reasoning. We're talking about seared consciences of trying to have relations with celestial beings. What did God do? God judged them. Why is that? It's interesting that the Bible also calls Lot righteous Lot. Lot was a living testimony in the midst of that city, and they refused to respond to that. Now think about what Jesus is saying here. If Jesus would have done his miracles in Sodom, do you ever does everybody see how it's implied here that they would have repented? He uses the same idea from the first deal, dealing with Bethsaida and Chorazin, and he brings it into the idea of Capernaum. And he says here, it would have remained to this day. Why? Because Jesus knows it was wiped off the face of the earth. Look what he says here. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable degrees of punishment in play for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Timing language. In the lake of fire. Isn't Jesus fun or what? He's pretty serious, isn't he? Does everybody see the seriousness of when they come across information about him? The expectation is to respond to him. People cannot be complacent about Jesus. 
Not everything that Jesus said ends up in a Hallmark card, okay? But he wasn't here to tell people what they wanted to hear. He was here to tell them about the truth about reality. This is God's world. This is how God works. And we have messed it up royally. And even when Jesus has revealed himself in such incredible ways to try to get attention. Why? Because his heart's for people. Of course he wants them to have a different mindset, to change their mind about this situation and respond to him in belief. Absolutely he wants that. Why would he want anything less? He's here to save them. Not here to judge them in the first coming. He came to save. Any questions about Matthew 11? 20 through 24. No? Is this working for everybody? Is this an okay format, or did I just need to yell at you for an hour? Okay, I just want to make sure. Now, turn your paper. Oh, gosh. You only get one question per... Go ahead. Whatever it is, you know what? Ask your husband at home. That's good. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, oh, psst. Kidding, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, hell and death itself will be thrown in the lake of fire, Revelation 20. Spirit. If you're a believer and you pass away, to be absent from your body is to be present with the Lord. Death is a separation, never a cessation. And so you're separated from your body, you're immediately in the Lord's presence. However, your body is still here on earth. So that doesn't, that's not resurrected until the rapture. But if you're an unbeliever, your spirit is held in hell. Hell is just a temporary holding place until there's time for the great white throne judgment in the lake of fire. And that's in Revelation chapter 20. You can read all about that. So yeah, it's a big thing that takes place. Yeah, uh, Hell's kind of like the long-term greyhound station until the final destination comes in. I know it's kind of a weird way to say it, but I don't know what else to say except you're only there for a time if you're an unbeliever. And it's a place of absolute agony and torment. I have no doubt that, that uh, the rich man who wouldn't give anything to Lazarus, I have no doubt that when it explains that whole idea of him looking across the chasm, uh, that Jesus was actually kind of fleshing out an idea of how horrible exactly that place was or is currently because it's still the thing. So, yeah. Sheol is hell. Yes, so Sheol uh, would be considered the Old Testament word of hell. It's often translated the grave in the Psalms, especially is how it's understood, but Sheol would be the Hebrew understanding of hell. We see it in the Greek as Hades. We all know it's like the Greek God, Hades kind of thing, but that's considered hell as well. So Sheol, Old Testament, Hades, New Testament, it's all hell. So, great, good question. Any other questions about this before we move forward? Do we have time to look at one more passage? I don't know. It's 11.15. Are we good? Let's do it. Turn it over. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Again, it's difficult to pull these. Our focus is repentance and trying to understand what they mean from context-giving meaning. But... I encourage you, if you have the opportunity, read all of Matthew 12 and and check it out. Matthew 12 is such a pivotal uh, section, especially because in Matthew 12 is when the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit takes place. And the Pharisees actually attribute the works of God to the credit of Satan. That is the unpardonable sin. That is the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that takes place. 
And so when that moment happens, Jesus shifts the focus of his ministry. He no longer teaches plainly. He begins teaching in parables, and that happens in chapter 13. So that's a major shift for the Jews because now the message is no longer repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The leaders speak for the nation, and they forfeit that opportunity. So now the kingdom is postponed, and Jesus is doing something different. It's also interesting in Matthew, up until that time of chapter 12, Jesus never talks about his death, his betrayal, his death, or his resurrection at all. After that point, when the leaders of Israel reject him, he then begins talking about it. So there's a crucial moment of unresponse that takes place. And remember, we talked about a long time ago, it's not actually atheism, it's anti-theism. It's the idea of speaking against what God is doing and hating what God is doing at that time. So now you have our fun-loving leaders going to show up. Jay. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, they were pulling that in. So so here we go. After that event happens, then some of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, why is this important? Because this is the audience. And anytime somebody's going to speak in a passage, it's incredibly helpful to ask the question, who are they speaking to? Because that will dictate how they talk. I am going to talk very differently to Zach than I am my wife. That's just the nature of it. And I would expect no different from you when you're doing that. So having that in mind is very important. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, now, of course, this is Jesus. They call him teacher. We want to see a sign from you. Now, a sign, they're talking about an incredible miracle, an incredible wonder, something amazing. Now, pause for a second. Has Jesus been doing cool stuff up to this point? Absolutely. So it's not like they don't know. It's the idea that they're pushing the envelope on the whole situation. Notice, but he answered and said to them, because he's a good friend maker, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. You're evil and you're adulterous. You're unfaithful. Now, anytime usually that God or Jesus would use the idea of adulterous, he's talking about spiritual infidelity. They've now become such holders of the law that they're judging other people's righteousness or spirituality based on whether or not they can keep the law. And God's pretty much been rooted out of the picture altogether. It's now become full-blown legalism. How are you performing? How are you doing? And that determines whether or not we'll accept or like you, okay? That's straight from the pits of hell. That's exactly what Satan wants every church to act like. So it says here, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now this is interesting because he says, for, everybody see that? Let me explain to you what I mean. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, and sea monster is probably the best explanation, not a fish, Jonah won't fit in a fish, okay? Possibly well, what'd they do in VeggieTales? Was it a sea monster? I don't know. Sometimes our theology's on. I'm not for sure. But notice, in the belly of a sea monster, notice. So, and that means in the same way, liking it to it. In the same way, will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth buried? That's kind of an interesting analogy. Notice what he says. The men of Nineveh, now notice how he connects this. What was Jonah's responsibility? Go and preach to the men of Nineveh, yeah? Now remember, the men of Nineveh were scary. They were an army that came in around 720-something, I think it was, B.C., and they overtook the northern kingdom. 
that had become Israel when Solomon had sinned. His son came on. They branched off. There was a major divide. Uh, uh, Judah was down at the bottom here uh, with Benjamin. And then all the other 10 tribes were up top. And the Assyrians came in, took them over. They became unfaithful real quick. And because of that, God judged them with another nation. And these are the guys who skin you and then take your skin and put it on their furniture. They're those scary guys, okay? They were a brutal, brutal, nasty people. So the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the what? Oh, man, why does Jesus talk so much about judgment? Because he's serious and he wants people to know and avoid it. Notice, they will stand up with this generation, the generation that Jesus is, and will condemn it. Condemn what? Condemn this generation. Now, he gives you the reason. Watch this. Because they did what? Uh Uh-oh. We need to see exactly what that looks like, and we will. Let's finish this out. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah told them what God said he was going to do. They said, ah, we don't want that. My mind has been changed. Watch this. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Right? Put it in big letters. Don't be ashamed. Jesus is here. The actual Messiah you've been waiting for is present. Why are you not responding the way you ought to? Now, if we were to look, and you want to write this to the side, Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 is the exact moment that he's talking about. Then the people of Nineveh, look what this uses. It says they repented, but look what it says here. They believed in God. If you change your mind repent-wise, and you change your mind because God's told you something that he's going to do, and you respond to it because you believe that it's true. Does that make a change of mind with repent and changing your mind and believe the same thing? The text says it does. Jesus says repent. The passage in Jonah uses the word believe. But when you make repentance emotional, when you make it the idea of I'm going to commit, I'm going to, I'm going to refuse to commit that sin ever again, I'm going to purpose myself against creating that error, you've now drifted into a work salvation that will save no one. If you keep repent, change of mind, and if you understand believe is a full conviction, just follow the passage, man. They, they zip it right together like a snug little zipper in winter. Here we go. Then the people in Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Didn't matter. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. Let me ask you a question. Is covering yourself with sackcloth and ashes repenting? No, it's evidence that you've what? That you've repented. You obviously have a different perspective now that God has given you this knowledge. And so you are responding accordingly because your mind has been changed. Guys, if we're acting before our mind has changed, that's how this world works. They're doing whatever's popular without any reason or logic thinking through it. That's not believers. That's not how people should be approaching this subject. So let's move on here. The Queen of the South, back to Matthew 12, the Queen of the South, she is also known as the Queen of Sheba. She comes to Solomon. She will rise up with this generation at the judgment, remember, lake of fire. That's when the great white throne judgment takes place. That's where people go. And will what? Condemn it. Does everybody see the parallels there in your Matthew 12 passage? That she will condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, 
something greater than Solomon is here. So not only do you have the men from Nineveh who believed God, they changed their mind, repented, and they are going to give a testimony at the great white throne judgment about the fact of you are guilty because you did not respond when God revealed himself. So the queen of Sheba is going to rise up and say, yes, as a second witness in this situation, right hand on the Bible, left hand up, whatever. She's going to say, I solemnly testify that they had way more revelation than I did, and I responded to what I had heard. I acted accordingly. Do you see that God's trying to get people's attention in this situation? Let me tell you a secret. It's no different today. This is why we tell people the gospel. This is the reason why we look back on the death and resurrection of Christ, and we can communicate that to people clearly today. Why? Because God doesn't want them in the lake of fire. He died to save them. There's nothing more tragic than knowing that your house has been paid for and you're still sending in your mortgage check. That's insane. People are still doing that today. Either that or they don't want their house paid for. You know what? I'd rather have this debt. Just live it up. Not a big deal. God is calling people to attention. Now let me give you a scary picture of what this looks like. Continue on in the text, okay? Watch what he says. Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, now we might actually say this on this regard, it's a demon. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, notice that this is the subject. He's given you a picture. Picture it in your mind. So it's cast out. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. You wonder why so many crazy things go on in the Middle East because it's an arid climate. It's because that's where a lot of spiritual demonic activity is. They don't like water. Don't ask me why. It's what the Bible says. Notice, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my what? House. Does everybody see that house here is connected to the man? Everybody see this? I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied. Uh Uh-oh, that's a dangerous place. Why? Because there's a vacancy. The Holy Spirit, the tenant has been kicked out. I can't find any place else to be, and so I'm going to come back. Oh, nobody's taken the apartment yet. Let's move back in. Notice, it's swept, and it's been put in order. Sound familiar? Make straight paths for the Messiah. Repent of your sin. Change your mind about it. Indulging in it. Get it clear so you can see Jesus and respond to him. And you're in a situation where it's like, yeah, well, I've responded to this because of what you're telling me, but I haven't believed in Christ yet. Man, that's a scary place to be. Think about Israel. Jesus came in cleaning house, getting this out of the way. It's swept. It's put in order. Then. Uh Uh-oh, it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits. It's a frat house now. It was one dirty guest, and now we got a frat house going on. More wicked than itself. They go in and live there in the man house. The analogy used here. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now watch what he says here. These are the guys, the scribes and Pharisees requested a sign. This is the way it will be also with this evil generation, this adulterous generation. The idea of repenting, the idea when when information about God comes our way, we are now held responsible to respond to him. Let me ask you a question by way of application about this. Don't everybody start putting your stuff away. Can you think of any information that about God that has come your way that you've just pushed off? 
For, for you, if you're a believer in Christ, it's a situation where you say, well, maybe that scripture might have been applied to me and it kind of convicted me of my sin, but I need to set it aside. I'm not really worried about that, right? I'm, you're not letting the word of God do what it needs to do through the power of the Holy Spirit to conform us more to the image of Christ. And so we have revelation revealed to us that God's taken the time to do at a particular point in our lives and we just push it aside. Have you not repented? Have you not sit here and said, well, this is what I'm doing with my life, but the word of God says this. There's got to be a change of mind that will lead to an obedience factor after that. Have you pushed that off? Have you slacked that off? That shouldn't be the case. That should not be the situation in our lives. Why? Because God gave his word to change us. There's a repentance that needs to take place. Believers need to repent. How about this? Let's say that you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ. Sorry to say, but this is a situation, as Jesus said, you are destined for the lake of fire right now. The reason why unbelievers are condemned is because they have not believed in the only Son of God. John 3 is very clear about that. So if you are here, and you hear the fact that Jesus has died for your sins because you deserve to die, that you are reserved right now for the lake of fire for all of eternity because you are without life. And Jesus died to pay your sin debt and to give you life eternal so that you never had to go there because there's no condemnation for anyone that is in Christ Jesus. If that's a situation and you hear that information, what is your response? Do you repent? Is your mind changed? Well, I need more evidence. Well, I need a sign. I need God to do something. You know what? God is very patient and he's very gracious. But the main way he communicates to anybody in our circles is through his word. That's the way he desires to do it. And his word should be enough in order to change minds. Why? Nobody's proven it wrong yet. We have yet to find one person that can find a contradiction in this. Repentance needs to take place. Your mind needs to be changed about the idea of, well, I don't need Jesus. I remember witnessing to a guy in a music store one time. He told me, he said, I'm good. I said, no, you're not. He said, no, no, me and God are good. I said, no, you're not. You need Christ. You're not good. No, I'm good. It's okay. I'm good. Not okay. He refused. He refused to change his mind when I began giving him the gospel. Are we giving people the gospel? We probably look around us and we say, well, yeah, that person, yeah, I see them you know, a couple times a week. They need to repent. Have you given them anything to repent about? We're not calling them necessarily away from their sin. They don't have to give up their sin to be saved. We're calling them to the Savior who died for sin. That's where we need the mind change. We need the mind change about the fact that they need salvation. Repentance needs to take place. It has to take place. Where are you at in that? I think that's important to ask. Because if there's something coming to your mind, the Holy Spirit's convicting your heart right now of a change that needs to be made and you're not making it, don't leave here the same person. Don't. It's not what God's Word was designed for. And we can see from these examples, these examples of accountability, when Jesus is talking about judgment, people who had far less repented so much more, had changed their mind so much more, and it led to a different way of life and a different destiny for them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do give us the word of God. I do thank you that you hold us responsible, accountable for your word. I ask, Father, please, Whatever it is that might be surfacing in our hearts or minds right now that is wrong, that is out of sorts with you, or if it's the fact that we have people here that don't know you, that they're not saved, they don't have eternal life, they have not received the forgiveness of sins that you've given. 
God, today is a different day. It needs to be a different day. The truth is the truth. It doesn't matter what hour it is. It's still true. I pray, God, please convict our hearts, convict our minds, and may your truth replace whatever lies or unbelief that we bought into. I pray that in the name of Christ. Amen.